entering the Freedom Hut. The Golden Globes get roasted and toasted. Iran retaliation is on the minds of everyone across the country right now. Pelosi's real enemy, we'll find out who that is. Also the wildfires in Australia and so much more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way, so in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Shut up. I know he's your friend, but I don't care. You had to make your own way here and your own plane, didn't you? Right. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It was quite a weekend, quite a day to get to. I know the, the most important, the biggest story in the world is certainly the anticipation of what is going to come from Iran. We'll spend some time on that today, but I didn't want to lead off with that. There's going to be plenty of time in the days ahead. Right now, it seems like it's just mostly speculation as well. There's not a whole lot that people really know. How could anyone know? So instead, I want to talk to you about the Golden Globes for a moment. I, like many of you, I'm sure, do not care at all to sit and watch people in Hollywood uh, talk about how amazing they are, get awards, discuss their courage. But I do like watching a, a very talented comedian who I would note is no particular friend of conservatives. It's not like he is someone who, for ideological reasons, decided to make a big thing of making fun of Hollywood. It's not like he's a conservative who finally got a chance. No, no. He, he makes fun of Christianity constantly in his stand-up. He makes fun of everybody. But I can respect that because he's a comedian, and he'll go after whomever. He, he's making fun of things. He's not pandering. He's not bending the knee. Ricky Gervais is one of, it feels like, the very few comedians left these days. And so that's why what he did last night was so... Entertaining, And I I think there's more than just the entertainment factor, which is why I wanted to talk to you about it today, although his Epstein joke was pretty fantastic. Uh, There were some other moments as well. Um, Harvey Weinstein, as you may see, is his trial begins today. And uh, there was a great Ricky Gervais joke specifically about Harvey Weinstein um, saying that the movie Bird Box is about people who pretend not to see anything so they can survive. Kind of like working for Harvey Weinstein. That was his joke that I thought was among the very best. Um, he did a fantastic job, but was it was amazing to see, because they, they panned around the room. This is the fifth time this guy's done this. This is the fifth time he's hosted the Golden Globes. The Hollywood Foreign Correspondents or Foreign Press Association or whatever it's called. Who even knows who these people are. I mean, I I guess it's just foreign journalists that cover media, but they've created this Golden Globes award ceremony that is their their most well-known. I I guess it's the reason this association even exists. And I would just uh, I would just point out that you would think these different luminaries of our entertainment industry, you would think that they would be in a place that they would understand they're going to get made fun of. That's why they bring this guy in, because people like me, because people across the country, the day after you have one of these Ricky Gervais monologues, people talk about it. It's great press. People care all of a sudden, because these award ceremonies are ridiculous. Look, I, 
I, I don't go to the Washington Correspondence Dinner. I don't care to go to the Correspondence Dinner. I will not go to the Correspondence Dinner. It's boring, mostly. But also, I think the whole thing is kind of bizarre. Well, what's with giving out, you know, giving out awards like we're all in grammar school and need a little plastic trophy to put on the shelf? Who cares? That makes no sense at all to me, especially as our cultural elites have gotten so divorced in their taste from the rest of the country. This is how you have movies that get nominated and win Oscars. I haven't even heard of these movies. And I'm not pretending. I mean, producer Mark has more of his finger on the pulse of pop culture than I do. And he would tell you that he's probably not the most pop culture immersed guy around by a long shot. He is shaking his head vigorously right now, side to side. Uh, but I, I, the fact that I haven't even heard of these movies just goes to show you that there is no question that the people that are making these decisions do not share, broadly speaking, the sentiments and the sense of what's good. In fact, now it's become a point of mockery if you say, why is it that 20 years ago, movies that won Best Picture were universally generally beloved, you know, movies like, uh, I don't know, Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan, The Pianist. I mean, these are great movies. They used to win Oscars, I'm talking about now. But you look at the, Gold you look at the Golden Globes, the Oscars today, and it's all this wokeness. It's just wokeness. It's all just self-performance, even outside of the performative acts of being a Hollywood celebrity. Uh, and because social media has created a circumstance for us where we can see who these people are and what they really think, um, we recognize that there are a bunch of ignoramuses. And so Ricky Gervais standing up there and mocking them, he also had a fantastic, I mean, I, we didn't pull that many of his jokes. Did we pull any other Bruce Mark of his jokes specifically? Because, I mean, he's going to deliver them better than I did. But it's all right. If we don't, I can just, yeah, play that, play that one. <laughs> Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god. And Second best joke of the night for me after Epstein right there. Many of them have spent less time in school than young Greta Thunberg, who is 16, maybe now 17. Many of them left to be full-time actors when they're 13 or 14 years old. Now, I'm not somebody who believes that you have to have formal education of any kind to be an educated person. It's clearly not the case. In fact, we have the democratization of information in a way now that would have been unthinkable for autodidacts even, what, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And you can give yourself, as long as you have someone to guide you along with the basic skills, you have to learn how to read and probably can't just do that without, you can't just flip on a computer and Although maybe we'll get to the point where it's all automated. But you have the skill set now, if you have the basic skill set now, rather, to operate the information machinery around you, you can teach yourself almost anything. That all said, Hollywood stars and celebrities are not an intellectually curious bunch. They, generally speaking, the very, very well-known ones, 
um, have actually made it where they are largely by winning the genetics lottery in a sense, by being really, really good looking. We're talking about this room of people. They're all, you know, physically some of them have gotten you know, considerably older now, but, you know, the ladies were bombshells and the guys were, you know, leading men, handsome, you know, whatever we call the handsome leading men of today. I don't know. But the point is they've done nothing to get where they are other than be very lucky in a lot of ways, starting at birth and then happen to operate within a Hollywood machinery that is as left wing as the faculty lounge of Wesleyan University. I mean, that's that's what is the reality of, of Hollywood today. And unfortunately, it has already made its way into that wokeness has made its way into these major digital behemoths, places like Amazon and Netflix. And although Disney Plus, I got to give it a little credit. Mandalorian is awesome. And Baby Yoda, this is the way. It's amazing. And Mandalorian's an excellent show if you haven't seen it already. The Witcher is trash if you want to just avoid that. I'm trying to help you out here, save you time. But we already know there's a left-wing tilt to these places. I mean, Jay Carney got hired by Amazon content as though, like, he knows something about doing scripted content. He got hired right out of the Obama administration. The Obamas have this Netflix deal. So it's not like it's getting better because the studio system, the Hollywood movie studio system has broken down and is not what it used to be. I mean, they used, that used to be the top of the entertainment pyramid. You'd go to you know, Universal Studios. You'd go to, I guess, MGM. I don't even know what they're all called. Uh, you know, Warner Brothers. You'd go to these places, and you know, they, could, they could write a check, effectively, to spend $100 million on a movie. Well, Netflix and Amazon, they'll spend $100 million on a brand-new TV show no one's ever heard of. So that's Or, or a movie... And I saw this movie with Will Smith called Bright. It was a very strange movie. I spent $100 million on that. Many of you have probably, most of you, I'm sure, have never even heard of it. It's on Netflix. Watch at your own risk. My little brother hated it. I think that it was, had its moments. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't like the, it wasn't the Witcher bad. The Witcher should now be, a, now be an epithet. Like, yo, man, that, that thing you just did, that was worse than the Witcher. You should just be able to say that to people. Um, but why does this also have a broader... How does this tie into things that matter more to us than just trashing um, Hollywood? Well, for one, I think that what we've seen is that the cultural elites in this country, just like, just like it has been the case with news media elites, we are now more aware than ever because they expose themselves to us. And I don't mean that in like a whoa kind of way, although they do that too. Uh, they expose themselves to us more than they ever have. And so we're more aware of the politics, the beliefs of the people that make entertainment. And this is why even those of you who, you know, you, you, you read a ton, you read books all the time, you, you care about the Constitution and you listen to talk radio, if you listen to this, uh, even if you ignore pop culture, pop culture doesn't ignore you. This has a tremendous effect, a tremendous effect on perceptions of tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people across the country. It affects the way they think, and you live in this country with those people. So it should, it has to matter to you at some level what's going on with these individuals. Um, they are incredibly sanctimonious, but also deeply insecure, which you tend to see among elites who are largely unearned in their placement in society. This is true of TV journalists that I talk to you about a lot of the time. I mean, people like Chuck Todd, 
What, what's what's impressive? People like Jake Tapper or or uh, what was his name? The guy that you know, oh, I was there in Iraq, except he wasn't, you know, on the plane that got, or the helicopter that hit by. Uh, I always I always forget his name, but you know, he's the he was the biggest newsman at NBC News. Producer Nick is going to send me the name in a second. I'm just blanking on it. Uh, but those individuals either just sucked up to the right people in the news media chain of command. Todd Tapper. Uh, I was going to say. Jennings, but he passed away a long time ago. I'm trying to think of the guy. Who's the guy? Brian Williams. Brian Williams. That guy looks and sounds like a news anchor supposed to. I don't think, I'm not even sure the guy, again, being an autodidact is fine. I've taught myself much more than I learned in college as an adult. No question about it. I learned not a whole lot in college and I actually tried to study. Uh, but it's one thing if you leave you know, if you don't finish high school, you don't finish the uh, the 10th grade, and then you spend the rest of your life going to cocktail parties and trying to tell everybody how brilliant you are, but you haven't done the work. And these people in the news media and these people in Hollywood who want to lecture us on women's rights and diversity and climate change and all this stuff, they haven't done the work. And it used to be that we had to take that from we had to be able to extrapolate that on our own from watching from being a viewer of the product that they put out there. But now, because of social media, and they like to put out their tweets, and like to do little FaceTime or Facebook videos or uh, videos on Instagram, TikTok, this Chinese site that I still don't really understand what it is, but I've seen it, but I don't really get why people like it so much. I was right, by the way, about Snapchat, that normal adults don't want to put fake cat faces on themselves and, and have their voices go really high. Like, that's not cool or cute. If you're a teenager, if you're 12, fine. But that that's why I knew Snapchat was toast years ago, so I feel good about that. I also knew that the Huffington Post was basically built on a foundation of sand and that it wasn't going to grow and that it wasn't making money. That BuzzFeed was a glorified uh, cat blog, um, which we've all been calling it for years. I mean, you can see what these things are. But if they raise enough venture capital funds, if they have enough money, they can just force feed themselves to you. So you have no way to escape, no way to get away from whatever it is that they're trying to present to you. Mike.com. I remember that. Mike.com Mike actually tried to, tried to hire me years ago, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. And then I saw the front page of their website right before I went down for a meeting. And it was like the most anti-cop absurd Black Lives Matter is saving the country kind of stuff I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I, I can't. I was supposed to be an opposition sort of columnist from anyone. I was like, this site isn't going to work either. Uh, but the media that we have now, especially the entertainment media, is going through a phase that I would say is somewhat similar to the dissolution of monarchy, which now I think there are about a dozen or so monarchies still technically in existence in Europe. But it, up until World War I, you had, all, you had monarchies that had real power. And then eventually, over those series, it really took a couple of centuries. Uh, but people started saying, hold on a minute. Wh wh why are these people in charge? Wh wh what's, so, what's so good about them? Why should we listen to them? Why should they be able to determine my future or my fate? Now, I'm not saying that you know, Selma Hayek or Brad Pitt or and I actually kind of like those two. I'm sure I should think of some of the ones that I hate off the top of my head or I shouldn't say hate too strong a word that I that are worthy of particular ridicule. Uh, Jennifer Aniston looking like she was going to cry talking about, uh, you know, Russell Crowe and uh, the the climate change problem. I mean, yeah, the brush fires in Australia. We'll talk about that. That's incredibly serious. It's deeply saddening that there's all these animals that are um, burning there. 
but claiming that we all have to, that that Hollywood is going to lead the charge to change the world and climate change and change the economy, and that that's really what Russell Crowe wants. These people are such blowhards, and they must know it at some level too, which is why they stand up there and say the things that they do in the way that they do. I don't mean, and it might be subconscious, but most of them have been revered for the most superficial of things imaginable, and yet they have much more sway among superficial and, I think you could say, low-information audiences. And so they use that. They wield that. But the monarchy of, uh, of Hollywood, the monarchy of the Hollywood studio system is breaking down, and movies aren't what they used to be, as Ricky Gervais said. And we are entering into a phase here where as long as we can start to wrestle control back from some of the major digital, the online, the internet gatekeepers, maybe we won't have to be force-fed this garbage by the Hollywood media anymore. Anyway, that was what I took from Ricky Gervais's speech last night. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just to know that there's a there's a part of me that still is a, feels a little sad for people who I, I can't tell. I don't know if they're really brainwashed or not. But the L.A. Times media critic wrote this whole piece in the L.A. Times after Golden Globes about how those celebrities it's it's been really hard for them because of all the issues because of Trump and climate change and the Australia uh, you know wildfires and all this stuff that it was really a solemn night actually and that Ricky Gervais would go in there and be disrespectful he missed the mark and everyone else is like nope it was amazing but I think for a lot of people still unfortunately you know while monarchies are crumbling there's still a lot of court jesters and some people like this uh, LA Times columnist still have to bend the knee it's one of the things I love about this show I never have to bend the knee. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What the United States did yesterday should have been done long ago. A lot of lives would have been saved. Just recently, Soleimani led the brutal repression of protesters in Iran where more than a thousand innocent civilians were tortured and killed by their own government. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. I was President Trump on Friday. Uh, after the show, he gave a little speech, and I wanted to share it with you because there's so much bad analysis out there right now. And so much um, stupidity and recklessness and dishonesty among those who are supposed to bring clarity and facts and necessary context to a moment like this, because the stakes are quite high. I don't think we are heading to war with Iran. I would put the percentage at less than 10 that we are going to get into any kind of protracted escalation with Iran that involves you know, U.S. military use of force on a consistent basis and large numbers of, numbers of casualties. You see, we have to start to define this because one aspect of this whole exchange, and this does get into some of the most important, it's, it's among the most important things we as a people, we the American people can consider and think about, war but also cannot allow to be exaggerated. Right? It can't just be, well, we do nothing or we have all-out war. That's not the reality of the situation in Iran. That's almost never the reality that we face anywhere. But a part of the context that gets lost here 
is that the Iranians have been doing things for such a long time that would be in other circumstances with another country, an act of war that would lead to open military hostilities that we've almost become numb to it. We just take it. We're sort of like Gulliver being, you know, tied down by the Lilliputians with the Iranians. Well, of course, they were able to tie him down for a while. But, you know, they're just throwing uh, throwing things at us and trying to agitate us. And because we're so much more powerful than they are, we always say, OK, well, you know, we don't want to we don't want to overreact. We don't want to miscalculate. People have been talking a lot about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Quds Force, which is just the external operations arm, right? IRGC internally is part of the repression machinery of the Iranian people. It's very much uh, very similar to what you would have had, say, in the Soviet era with the KGB. And the KGB was an intelligence service. It was also really a paramilitary service. And it was it was just the action arm, the concentrated violence and brutality of the state, that's really the purpose of it. And so the Quds Force is an extension of that beyond Iranian boundaries and territory and has been spreading misery and destruction across the region for quite some time, for decades, really. Remember, Iran seized our embassy and took our people hostage. Did we engage in massive military retaliation as a result of that when that happened to the Carter administration? Go all the way back to 1979. No, no, we did not. Iran was involved in the Kobar Towers attack in Saudi Arabia against U.S. military personnel. Was, was there anything done major in response to that? No, there was not. Now, there have been some moments in time where we have taken action against the Iranians. I mentioned the tanker war to you before, and there was a very unfortunate incident where a U.S. guided missile destroyer shot an Iranian civilian jetliner out of the sky, thinking that it was an enemy fighter plane, killed, I think, almost 200 people. Uh, a very, a very tragic day. So there, I'm not saying that there has not been use of force and there have not been miscalculations. Clearly, that was a major miscalculation. But this has been going on for a very long time. At what point do we decide that just sanctions and just terse words are not enough? At what point do we turn around and say, you know, this is not going to stand anymore? I mean, Qasem Soleimani was a designated terrorist, a designated terrorist by the United States government. He was openly plotting against American. It's now you could say that our, our government is lying to us about this. And to that, I would say, you know, there are lies that you could excuse or rather, you could understand how somebody in the apparatus could excuse for reasons of politics or things that somebody might push aside and say, there's something bigger here. There's something greater here. In this case, I'm not saying this is impossible. The government has lied to us about things before. And the government has been wrong before. And sometimes wrong and lies are very cl a very close call which one you're really dealing with. Uh, we were wrong about the weapons of mass destruction as presented by Colin Powell at the United Nations, et cetera, et cetera, under the Bush administration. We were wrong. And we have to look at the Iraq war now and wonder what exactly has been accomplished here when you have the Iraqi parliament. It's a non-binding resolution they voted on, but saying they want the United States to leave. Uh, understand this. A shift in U.S. national security posture that is meaningful would result in 
the United States taking an approach where not only are we not going to rebuild other countries, we're not going to do Afghanistan anymore, we're not going to do Iraq anymore, we're starting to get a little bit of that serious situation. Oh, remember when we abandoned the Kurds and it was the worst thing ever? You know, it was it was the most uh, most de depraved act by a U.S. president in, in history and all this crazy stuff they were saying. Seems like everything's kind of just continuing on. Life has gone on. There has not been some mass genocide. The Turks haven't, you know, dropped gas all over Syria to kill all the Kurds. I mean, this has not happened. Remember when people were all hysterical about this? And there was, oh, there was so much rending of garments and gnashing of teeth by the Democrats over it. They were so very, very upset. Did they really care about the Kurds? I was telling you the answer was no. Do we think that I was probably right about that? If we have to look at it at this point, you probably have to say, well, I think it's clear that that was all done as a, as a show against President Trump. That was all meant to just be an opportunity to attack him domestically. But if we, and I'll get into the politics of this more in a moment, because look, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And I'm trying to avoid just the, there's all this, all the people, the speculation I see. We're going, oh, they're, you know, they might hit us here, they might hit us there. We've done a little bit of that just to fill out our conversation here. But until they do something, we don't know what the Iranians have done. It's the most simple, straightforward. It's so blatant. It's so obvious. It, it feels weird even saying it. But sometimes you have to repeat and you have to uh, be very clear with statements like that because people are getting way ahead of themselves. We're acting like we're already in some elevated state of hostilities. Qasem Soleimani is one man. The Iranians, when they were fighting the Iraqis in the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, went on for nine years, they trained Iranian youth to run across minefields to try to clear them. How do you think that worked out? It's effectively telling people it's, it's a suicide bomber where you're not taking anyone out but yourself effectively. Using human beings to clear minefields because that was the mentality. That's the, the truth of, of what's in the heart of these mullahs, this, these theocrats, right? These, they're religious fanatics, which is frightening. Now, religious fanatics, you know, they, they still deal with some of the same day-to-day. -day, they deal with many of the same day-to-day -day constraints the rest of us do if they, if they want to live. But a true religious fanatic, along the lines of the Iranian mullahs, who believe that they are in a protracted war with non-Muslims, with the West, with Israel, with America, um, they're willing to do effectively anything. And that's why we have this big problem, of course, of Iran possibly getting nuclear weapons and what would it mean and what would happen after that. But if we're going to change the policy, and this is where... This is where the Trump as disruptor fact has to come into the conversation. If we're going to change the policy of the United States when it comes to foreign relations, national security, international affairs, however you want to put it, that means not only are we going to avoid the reconstruction of these other countries trying to create flowers, essentially the neocon approach on the right, done. Can't do that anymore. But that's going to mean something else as well. There will be countries where terrible things happen. There will be countries where we will be quite aware. I mean, this was certainly the case for almost all of Obama's time in office. The Syrian civil war turned into, you know, the eighth circle of hell. How much worse could it really have been? 
hundreds of thousands dead, mass rapes, mass murders, gas attacks, whole cities leveled. I mean, how much worse could the Syrian civil war have been? And keep in mind that we took this under the Obama administration, we took this position that you know our leadership was going to try to bring this to a close sooner and that there would be a U.N. mandate. There was a U.N. mandate to make sure the violence would end a political settlement. This was the stuff they're talking about now. It seems preposterous because it, they didn't do a thing. And then Obama's Pentagon plan, they spent, I think it was $500 million to put five actual fighters into the conflict. And then there are people who still talk about the running of weapons from Libya to Syria to try to help the anti-Assad Syrian forces, jihadists under the Obama administration. I mean, it's just a complete mess, a nightmare. Here's the part of this that gets complex, or that gets difficult for a lot of people. Because we just had the Iraqi parliament non-binding vote for us to leave Iraq. If we leave Iraq, things are going to get very, very ugly there. It's going to get very messy. If we leave Afghanistan, things, I will tell you the truth about this. A lot of people will, you know, thump their chest, especially a lot of the think tankers out there. They'll thump their chest and say, you know, no, no, we should stay forever. And, or they'll say we should pull out and everything will be fine. I'm here to tell you, no, we should pull out and everything's not going to be fine. Because we no longer, I mean, this was, this was a, a promise that Trump was making. No more endless war, no more wars that are unnecessary in the first place. An endless occupation of these foreign countries. And remember, occupation is different from having a base. I hate when people do this. They say, well, we have troops. We have troops in South Korea. Yeah, because South Korea is a stable nation state under threat from an external regime. I understand that. But no one's really worried that South Korea is going to dissolve anytime soon or that our troops are going to come under assault, you know, driving down the streets of Seoul. They are worried about that in Kabul, in Jalalabad, in coast in different parts of Afghanistan. They are concerned about that. That is a that is a problem. So I think that this is where we have to say you're going to see um, you're going to see a decision point here for the Trump administration in Afghanistan and, and for Iraq. This is forcing our hand that we will have to be willing to leave these places and leave them knowing that very bad things will happen and that, yes, you know, 82nd Airborne, yes, a Marine Expeditionary Force, our soldiers, our troops who are good people, who do good things, who are the most talented, exceptional and humane fighting force the world has ever known. We could stop it, but we would have to take responsibility again and we would have to lose our people and we don't want to do it anymore. Maybe other countries need to start figuring out some stuff on their own. They're going to be messy, messy places. And maybe all of a sudden, Trump has brought to the fore the possibility that we won't be building these countries anymore. We won't be responsible for their elections and their, you know, no, done with that. And by the way, if anybody in those countries then, or if those countries are used as launch pads for attacks, or even if the national government decides to wage war in the United States, as Iran has been doing, we will go back at them in a way that right now feels perhaps excessive to some of us. But that excess may bring about a new reality where countries know they will no longer cross us, where the idea of a Qasem Soleimani, a very senior government official from a foreign nation state, wouldn't dream of taking selfies and smiling while he's thinking about the next operation against U.S. interests, U.S. troops. That somebody with the blood of so many hundreds of American soldiers, soldiers who never made it home to this country because Qasem Soleimani wanted to do the bidding of the mullahs in a country that is not Iran, 
that nobody would ever consider doing that again because they understand if you harm us like this, we will come after you. We will kill you. We don't care what bureaucrats in Europe say. We don't care what the so-called international consensus of media elites, unfortunately, overwhelmingly staffed with vain cowards. We don't care what they say. The country is going to take a different approach because the approach we have been taking on a bipartisan basis for the last 20 years has not worked. Some would say for the last 70 years, but a different conversation. So what do I think comes next? Well, for that, I might as well turn to what some of the Democrats are saying. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. As president, would you not prioritize the U.S. military killing the leaders of organizations, designated terrorist organizations? Look, the job of the president is to keep us safe. Uh, And we know in this circumstance that Donald Trump was presented with a range of options by way of response. But the point is not to try to move us closer to war. The point is to move us away from that. Well, you see, if, if, if Donald Trump is for something, I, I have to be against it. Even if that means taking out terrorists who have done terrible things. Uh, Elizabeth Warren as commander-in-chief, folks, that's, that's what a, a lot of Democrats, at least about, getting up on around 20% of them, give or take, that's what they think should happen. You see this with all these different Democrats coming out now, saying things that are simply uh, absurd. They don't care. They don't care about what the reality is of the strike so much as they care about what the politics of the moment demand of them to say. That is the the, the simple truth. That's what really motivates them one way or the other. Here is, for example, Senator Chris Murphy, uh, who does confer upon Qasem Soleimani a kind of special immunity Play clip 28, please. It is an assassination. I mean, this is a um, top uh, official of a foreign government. This isn't the head of a non-state terrorist group. No matter how bad a guy he is, how evil he was, uh, he was a commanding general of a sovereign foreign nation, and we executed him. So I don't think you can call it anything other than an assassination. It's not the first time that America has been involved in assassinating a foreign official, but it's probably the most high profile foreign official that the United States military uh, has ever executed. He seems to forget that when we declared war on Saddam Hussein, we blew up all of his palaces, not just because we wanted to see them glow in the dark. We were trying to kill him. This is the reality. This is why, in fact, even if we're talking about civilian control of the military, when you are the commander in chief of a foreign nation and you're in a state of war. Guess what? You are in jeopardy. That is the truth. We can say that there's international law that prevents this and all all the rest of it, but does anyone really believe if Kim Jong-un was about to tell his, you know, missile brigades to launch on South Korea, and we knew that taking him out would prevent that launch, does anyone really think that we'd be getting lectures about how it's a war crime to take out Kim Jong-un? I, I, I just pose this to you. First of all, he's wrong on the merits as well about calling this, or just wrong technically about calling this an assassination. This was a military figure in a declared war zone engaged in active hostilities against the United States. 
do you think that we could like you know we could deploy a three-star general just you know airdrop them into into Iran and have him walk around and try to start calling in airstrikes on targets in Tehran and then if someone you know took him out we'd say whoa hold on that's a three-star general you can't do that that's actually not how it works but Chris Murphy doesn't care it's all about trashing Trump thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on Apple podcast the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts Iran announced today that it's accelerating its nuclear program. Guess who loses with that? America and its allies. There was an airtight agreement we had with inspectors on the ground, the most intrusive inspection in all of human history, not hyperbole. We knew exactly we were in every single facility, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they were not violated. They're not good guys, but they were not moving toward a nuclear weapon. There was no chance they could get there without us knowing it at least a year to two years in advance, giving us plenty of options. Joe Biden's delusional. But remember, Joe Biden has been reliably and in this way, he's actually very useful in foreign policy. He has been reliably wrong on every foreign policy issue of any importance for 40 years. Whatever Joe Biden wanted to do or didn't want to do, the opposite of that thing was the good idea. So Joe Biden's great in this way. Just make sure you oppose Joe Biden on any foreign policy issue and you'll be in good shape. And here he is saying this Iran deal was ironclad and airtight. And well, hold on a second. What happens when the Iranians want to just decide to restart their nuclear program? It's just like, okay, let the assembly line start going again. We're supposed to live with that as the reality of the Iranian state? We're supposed to let the Iranians, and by the way, they, they always leave this out. There were sunset provisions in this process. No sunset on the Iranian nuclear program, mind you. Just if you obey, if you do you know, what we've outlined in this agreement, which allows them to keep their nuclear program, keep sending you know, aid to terrorist regimes all across the Middle East, threatening our people, taking our Navy sailors hostage, making a mockery of them, all the stuff that they've done, all the things, all the provocations from Iran. And... With all of that, they could still at any point in time do exactly what they're now threatening to do, which is just start spinning the centrifuges again. And they think this was a good agreement. Why should we live with an Iranian state that is already there, that is at that point? Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to wait five or ten years till Qasem Soleimani, for example. Well, this isn't a problem anymore because he's he's taking a, a very long nap. But. Well, Qasem Soleimani, he was going to come off the sanctions list, they were saying at one point, come off the nuclear sanctions list. Um, other individuals are going to get removed from it in time. And there were all these inducements. And all along, Iran gets to keep the essential infrastructure for its nuclear program. And eventually, the agreement just sort of isn't an agreement anymore. Oh, so that's great. So let's let Iran uh, develop much more of its critical military infrastructure, become much wealthier, become entrenched in the international financial system find all kinds of ways to hide assets, to build up its coffers, to modernize its military. Let's give Iran a decade of no worries of external strikes, keeping their military, I mean, keeping their nuclear program in place while their military gets stronger, their government gets richer. And then at the end of that, we'll just come up with some other idea of what we're going to tell them. You see, no, at the end of that, then we have to say, hold on a second, a bigger, wealthier Iran with better weapon systems, a better military could just decide, you know what, we're going nuclear now. What are you going to do about it? So here's the other problem. Rogue states 
that that get nuclear weapons. Now we're in the North Korea situation, where all, where it becomes very very different. You think we're ever going to get Iran to give up its nukes once they have them? It's never going to happen. So all they have to do is get to that place. And if they raise the calculation, if they make it hard enough for us to be able to eradicate their nuclear program because their military advances, because they become a much stronger country, they were greatly weakened when Obama came in. Their economy was in free fall. Things are not good in Iran. There's all kinds of tumult. They just had to execute in the streets hundreds of protesters, right? So there is real instability in this country. The young people, I mean, this is often forgotten. There were such great losses from the Iran-Iraq, I keep bringing this up, but it's important to understand where we are now with Iran. There were such great losses from the Iran-Iraq civil war that the mullahs decided that they needed to pay major state subsidies so that Iranian women would have more children. And so what you have is post the horrific war, I mean, over a million casualties, killed, wounded, it is, it is a horrific war in the, in, the, uh, in the 80s in Iran and uh, with Iran and Iraq. They lost so many young people that were actually using them as cannon fodder. I mean, using them as landmine fodder. They lost so many young people that the mullah said, okay, we're going to start subsidizing children to be, you know, women to have children, uh, families to have children. And now you have this, this youth bulge, which is why we keep talking about the young in Iran. You have this youth bulge. A lot of people in Iran, you know, demographically, there's this, you know, there's the fat end of the wedge demographically for the Iranians is you have all these young people in their 20s and their 30s. And they're like, what is with this? Re this regime stinks. This regime's terrible. What are we doing here? Now, can they say that openly? Of course not. You know, the Iranian security and military apparatus is very invested and has become, unfortunately, uh, quite adept at suppressing those voices. But they got a problem because eventually enough young people have no real future, no economic mobility, no freedom. You know, what, what exactly does a 20-year-old Iranian today really have to look forward to under the current circumstance? So we have, there are these pieces in play that would make it harder for the regime to continue doing what it does. Now, maybe the regime isn't toppled. Maybe the regime just changes internally. Who knows what ends up happening? I mean, we've been waiting for this now for over 30 years, over 40 years, going on 50 years. But... By throwing them a lifeline because Obama and the Democrats and the left in this country really still have a guilt complex over Mossadegh. They really feel like everything bad that's happened in Iran is somehow really the fault of the United States. You'll see some leftists who think this. It's the fault of the United States because we were involved in the coup to remove Mossadegh because we were still playing great game politics with the Soviet Union and we did not want Mossadegh to be in charge in Iran. But they never then explain how it is that when the Shah, who we helped keep in power, who was a bad guy, although, of course, the mullahs are much worse guys, uh, the mullahs effectively hijacked, hijacked the revolution against the Shah for their own purposes. And this so often happens in countries where a regime is ousted with force, right? That there's a legitimate grievance, of course, because that's how you have popular mobilization against a government. You know, for government's doing really well, I mean, you know, there's a reason why you're not seeing popular mobilization against the Swiss or against Singapore or against Norway or something. People are like, yeah, things are pretty good. A government has to be inept, decrepit, ineffectual, oppressive. But that doesn't mean that the people that end up in power once that government is gone are 
in any way, really, an improvement. And that's what you have in Iran. So it is, in effect, the fault of the Iranian. I mean, it is, you know, Iran is an Iran problem, ultimately. I know, again, we're going to some pretty basic, uh, some truisms here, some things that are self evident, but sometimes self evident truths need to be repeated. It is the Iranian people who have, or it, it is Iranians who hijacked the Iranian revolution against the Shah and have made this country into a place that um, is an abysmal failure in so many ways as a state after you know, millennia of withstanding cultural onslaught, uh, dealing with, I mean, you, you go back through, through Persian history I and mean, the fact that Persians even just maintain their language and this cultural distinctiveness from the huge surge of what was effectively Arab Muslim expansionism starting in the seventh century with the prophet muhammad and then going all the way the, the fact that the persians were able to maintain this persian identity and that persia as a polity as a as some form of state has existed for so long in fact it predates islam right uh, there's and, and it dealt with the mongol invasion some really crazy stuff happened back then they have maintained this and yet they continue on Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will defend America and the strikes we took over this past week, including killing the terrorist Soleimani. Uh, we will continue to take if we need to. The American people should know we will always defend them, and we'll do so in a way that is consistent with the international rule of law. You can always tell who you should like in this administration based on how much Democrats hate that person. Very important. That, that's a, it's an ironclad rule at this point. The more they despise a member of Trump's cabinet, inner circle, an advisor, anybody, the more effective that person is and the more a threat that person is to the progressive left-wing agenda. And so that's why I can tell you that Pompeo is good at what he does and is a good choice, has been a good choice for the administration because, man, do libs hate him. Almost as much as they hate Bill Barr, who is probably the single biggest threat to left-wing attempts to oust this president using the weaponization of the bureaucracy and the abuse of uh, congressional power and the DOJ and all the rest of it, Russia, Russia, all that stuff. But uh, the strike that was taken here has obviously set up a situation where we could see a major retaliation. I, I don't know what exactly is going to happen, as I've been telling you. Um, I do know that there are hundreds of thousands of protesters that are going in the streets in Iran. And from that, we are supposed to take uh, take the Democrats word that this is representative of the broad opinion of the Iranian people, which I don't think is true. And we're also supposed to believe that this is somehow a marked departure from what existed before. Um, oh, and also, you have to, I didn't get to this before. They say that Trump is lying. That is, of course, a part of this, that there was no imminent attack, that this is all, uh, all a fraud. Here, here is the president just speaking his mind on what exactly pushed him to uh, take this very decisive action. Play clip 42, please. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. 
We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. For years, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its ruthless Quds Force under Soleimani's leadership has targeted, injured, and murdered hundreds of American civilians and servicemen. The recent attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq, including rocket strikes that killed an American and injured four American servicemen very badly, as well as a violent assault on our embassy in Baghdad, were carried out at the direction of Soleimani. Soleimani made the death of innocent people his sick passion. And yet the Democrats seem to mourn his passing. They will say, we don't mourn his passing, but then they'll say, this is a terrible decision. We're now close to war. Trump never should have done this. And and some of the media will refer to him as, what was it, a, a rever- the most revered military figure in Iran. That was how they referred to him. Oh, wow. And then you have, of course, the conspiracy theories. Wag the dog, perhaps. And they say, here is a, Elizabeth Warren trying to pull this all together in one perfect little package for insane Trump deranged Democrats. Play 38. The question is, why now? Uh, Why not a month ago? Why not a month from now? And the administration simply can't keep its story straight. It points in all different directions. The last time we saw this was this past summer over Ukraine, when people started asking questions about what had happened on the phone call between Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine and why aid to Ukraine had been stopped. The administration did the same thing. They point in all different directions and give a whole lot of different answers. And of course, what it turned out to be is that Donald Trump was doing what Donald Trump does. And that is he was advancing his own personal political interests. And I think the you question think that's people here? reasonably ask, I think the question people reasonably ask is next week, Donald Trump faces the start potentially of an impeachment trial. And uh, why now? That's Elizabeth Warren in the most slimy, dishonest, passive-aggressive way possible, saying that Trump killed Qasem Soleimani because of the impeachment trial. Yeah. The impeachment that, by the way, makes Democrats, unless you're, unless you're somebody who's just delusional, this whole impeachment thing is ridiculous. Nancy Pelosi saying there's urgency. Now they're saying, whoa, whoa, we don't get the witnesses we want. We're not even going to hand over the articles of impeachment. I'm also seeing they might add a third article of impeachment, probably killing Qasem Soleimani. Well, first, first, the Democrats are waiting for the Ninth Circuit of Appeals to rule the Qasem Soleimani strike unconstitutional, I'm sure. And then Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi will, you know, add, add on to this. Right. Then she'll make it another article of impeachment. They'll they'll stack what they already have with the third article of impeachment. And he killed Qasem Soleimani, a revered military leader and austere religious scholar, according to Libs. We could see something like that happen. In fact, Nancy Pelosi, as, as if we haven't seen enough just ridiculous politics from the Democrats recently, Pelosi has announced that she and the Democrats are going to uh, pass a 
war powers resolution, or have, I should say, a war powers resolution vote. Because the Democrats who march in lockstep, you got to give Democrats credit. They're like the Borg from Star Trek. I mean, they're just like a machine that is always unified and in lockstep on these issues. We have all these fights, you know, on the Republican side. We got people that are, oh, I don't know about this, I don't know about that. Democrats, it's, oh, is that what... Is that what the statists, the socialists, the progressives, the wokeness, is that what they want? Boom. Everybody does it. Obamacare, everybody on board for it. Getting rid of Trump or, you know, impeaching him, which they know won't really get rid of him, but almost all of them were. I think what there was one Tulsi Gabbard was a voted president. Right. And then there's that one Democrat who switched sides. But people have already kind of I mean, I, look, I forgot the guy's name. People have already forgotten his name. Maybe he'll do more stuff. Point here being that the War Powers Resolution is this is just a, this is for show. This is theater. No serious person thinks otherwise. Oh, yeah. We're, we're Pelosi and Democrats so worried about the War Powers Act and the 30 days of military action from a president before having to actually cease it unless Congress continues it. Were they worried about that during, oh, I don't know, Libya? Were they worried about that uh, during the Clinton administration and uh, in the Balkans. I, I just want to know where where does the principle begin and the politics end? With Democrats, we all know the answer is that there is no place where principle exceeds politics. Politics always dictates everything that they care about, everything that they do. Um, this is simply uh, utterly absurd. It is dishonest. Um, I do think that Secretary of State Pompeo, to bring it back to him for a moment here, is correct when he says, play a clip 24. If you're an American in the region, days and weeks, this is not something that's relevant. We have to prepare. We have to be ready. And we took a bad guy off the battlefield. I, we made the right decision. There is less risk today to American forces in the region as a result of that attack. I'm proud of the effort that President Trump undertook and the execution by our military was phenomenal. And the work that's been done by our diplomats in the region to prepare and to work diplomatically in the region has been powerful, important, and effective. Indeed. Democrats say all of that is essentially a lie, that uh, it's not, we're not better off, we're not safer. We'll see you in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, here's a headline that will certainly excite many many of those on the left who are hoping that President Trump uh, crashes on the rocks of this impeachment fiasco. Uh, former National Security Advisor Bolton is willing to testify in the Senate impeachment trial if he is subpoenaed. Everyone's wondering, oh, is Bolton going to be the one who finally... Here, here's where I, I have to say, we've been so consistent here for a long time on this. I don't care if the president did have a quid pro quo for the aid to Ukraine. I don't I, I don't see this as the problem that so many other people see it as. I think the president had a legitimate interest in corruption. I think the Bidens are a legitimate target of inquiry. And, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Democrats will just decide some people are off limits. Like all of a sudden, Qasem Soleimani is off limits for a military strike, for investigations. The Bidens are off limits just based on what they want. I mean, what's really the principle here? What's the separating, you know, the, the, the definitional difference between wh why somebody should be subject to investigation or to military strike in the case of Qasem Soleimani versus somebody who isn't? 
just the whims of the Democratic Party, it seems. That is the single most important thing that we're all supposed to believe determines everything, everything else. Um, so we might have Bolton testifying, but we also don't know if there's ever going to. I still have that bet with my man, Jesse Kelly, my buddy. I got to see if, in fact, I'm right that Nancy Pelosi does transmit. Remember, I said that she would ha- she has to transmit them at some point. Otherwise, it just becomes too ridiculous. Um, now we're saying they're trying to maneuver after doing it. You know, they wanted the impeachment done and now they're maneuvering to bolster the case around impeachment. Now they're maneuvering so that they can try to come up with some rationale, some explanation beyond what they've already offered for why the president of the United States should be removed from office. But they know that it's weak. They have to know at this point because it's in their interest to know that this is absurd. This is bizarre, in fact, that Democrats have presented this to the American people thinking, if they do think, that it's going to make anyone safer. I mean, sorry, it's going to make anyone change their mind. Uh, It will not. I saw a clip that had to do with gun safety, and all of a sudden it got jumbled in my brain for a second. Um, Now, Schiff, shifty Schiff. We have not heard the last of him when it comes to this uh, impeachment fiasco. Now, Democrats still believe that they're in a position to dictate the way the Senate is going to conduct the Senate trial. Now, so Democrats, when they're in the majority, it's their way or the highway. When Democrats are in the minority, it's, oh, no, but you have to do what we want because a bunch of stuff we say. But wait wait a second. I thought we'd already. No, no, no. Because a bunch of things that we've said. Oh, okay. Here's Adam Schiff. And by the way, they also like to talk about how the election can't have any. You know, there's no election integrity going forward if Trump wins. They're, they're setting the groundwork for this right now. Make no mistake about it. Trump, I do believe, is going to. And I, I'm going to stop saying Trump's. Look, here's my prediction. Bruce and Margaret, Margaret, today. Trump's going to get reelected. OK, I have confidence. He's going to get it done. we got four more years. OK, I'm not going to say it anymore because you know what? I don't want us to be overconfident. I don't want people to stay home. I don't want people to think that they don't have a voice that matters in this process because Trump's got it. No, in fact, I'm worried that that will lead to Trump losing. So I'm, I'm not no more. No more. I think Trump's going to win. But nuh-uh. now we're all in. You got to win it. We can celebrate the victory as long as you want after. Right. We can celebrate the four more years for 40 years after it. I mean, look at how we still talk about Reagan. But we got to get there first. And I do have my concerns that, look, Trump, the wall isn't built. Uh, You know, uh, people might get a little complacent. Democrats were caught napping in 2016, no question. And that's why there was such an outrage, such an outrage and a freak out about this. It's also why, you know, all this Russia stuff that they concocted. Yeah, they knew some of it beforehand, a little, you know, the Internet stuff that was going on. They didn't freak out about it, though. Why didn't they freak out? Because Russian interference wasn't such a big deal. Well, it wasn't such a big deal in the sense that it didn't change anything. But, well, because I assumed Hillary was going to win, so it didn't really matter. Russian interference would not have mattered. Keep this in mind. Democrats would not have cared about Russian interference in the election if Hillary Clinton had won. It wouldn't have mattered. Okay, because that's the right outcome. How can you be upset about the right outcome, right? If you have a binary event, one of two things, one is good, one is bad. You know, if I told if I told you, you know, you have a terminal disease, and, you know, I, I gave you the, the antidote to save you, but it turns out that I stole that antidote, but you're still saved. Do you care? No, you do not. You're just happy that you're saved. 
That's the way the Democrats viewed the Russian interference in the election. It didn't matter because Hillary's going to win. Oops, nope. Turns out Hillary didn't win. They still think she did, but she she did not win. Um, and and then you have uh, you have Schiff running around being as just disingenuous and dishonest as he ever has. I mean, Schiff is Schiff is an abject disgrace. I mean, he he is the worst of the worst as far as I'm concerned uh, when it comes to any Democrat. On, I mean, I know he's a leading Democrat in this impeachment thing, but the guy will say anything, and his whole like, oh, I'm just so upset about this, and oh, I don't want to do this. Nancy Pelosi's prayerful, except when she's waving her hand at people like this. Ah, don't do that. Don't cheer. Got to fool the remaining five morons in this country who don't realize that this is all a sham that Democrats are running against the president because the president's been so effective. There's a part of me that feels a little bit of, I mean, I'm not going to say sympathy, but I kind of get where some of the Democrats are coming from on this stuff because what are they going to say? We hate all this economic prosperity, relative peace, and effective governance? We hate all the deregulation, the rising wages, the low unemployment, the booming stock market, the no new wars. We hate it. Securing the border. We hate it. Well, the Democrats do hate that. But the other stuff, they're supposed to at least pretend. Pretend that they don't hate. Although economic misery, as you know, is the most fertile ground for socialists. So economic misery, if it were to continue or rather economic misery, if it were to arise all of a sudden in this country, if we were to have people that were really out of work, big unemployment surge, then Democrats would have some kind of a case to make about how they should be in power. And that would also then allow the socialists within the Democrat ranks, although I think increasingly it's hard to tell the difference between a Democrat and a socialist, if there is any difference at all. Uh, It's just a question of degree, maybe. Uh, But they don't have a case to make on the merits. So that's why they've relied on all this other stuff, the process weaponized against the president, the the bureaucracy used as a check on the president of the United States. Um, And that's also why Adam Schiff has been given all of this leeway by Democrats to run around just saying all kinds of absurd and silly stuff. I mentioned that he's not willing to let the election play out without first undermining the election. Producer Mark, please play clip 15, if you would. But what the House counsel is saying is we have been trying to get testimony from people like uh, Don McGahn. We've been trying to get the grand jury material as part of the impeachment inquiry. Uh, And for those senators who say, well, why didn't the House wait on the Ukraine articles until you exhausted the court remedies? The reason is because on those articles, um, the president was trying to seek uh, foreign help in the election. It's not sufficient to say, let's wait another year or two years to get these witnesses in uh, if the president is trying to cheat in the next election. So we move forward with those articles that had the the greatest sense of urgency. We continue to press the case uh, with McGahn, with the grand jury material, with those that uh, weren't as urgent. uh, And I think that makes uh, all the sense in the world. That's a stunning and wildly dishonest charge from Schiff. President's trying to cheat in the next election. That's what he's that's what he's saying here. I mean, you heard him. Cheat how exactly? What, what, what was the cheating? Give me an answer about a thing if you can, if you have the time at some point. Thanks. Oh, no answer was given. Nothing was done. That's cheating in an election. This is absurd. But they know Schiff knows that the case was weak. This is a repeat, isn't it? These people, you know, what is it, Yogi Berra, uh, deja vu all over again, right? 
who was Yogi Yogi Berra was a uh, I mean he was the um the, the baseball oh, right fuck. what was he was a Yankee yes yeah Yankee yeah. Was he a player or a manager? He was a player and he managed the Mets. As uh, well. Both. That's why. And see. the Yankees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I'm he glad recently passed away a couple years ago. Oh, is that so? Yeah. I was unaware of that. Maybe with nice weather, we'll have to go, you and producer Brandon, also to a baseball game. So yeah. Oh, experience. I would love to see you at a baseball game. I would game. experience America. Have you ever been to City Field or do they, Yankee do they Stadium? Serve, do they serve rose in the stands or just beer? Uh, they have wine and stuff. <laughs> City Field, I will say, as long the as best got some food and bougie beverages, I can make it happen. Best food and baseball at City Field, I will is say. Is it really true? It is fantastic. Uh-huh. It's not just ballpark hot dogs and chicken fingers anymore. It's, it's other stuff. Oh, fun things. Mm-hmm. I, a little digression here from, from Shift being gross. No, 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 no. I was going to say, I actually went, because I'm a, I'm a real American, I went with my family to PBR on Friday. Do you know what PBR is? Yeah, professional bull riding. Yeah. Why? It's amazing. How uh, how could you produce a mark? I couldn't think of anything more. Boring. I mean, your your grumpiness is legendary at this point. But you get to watch this amazing animal like contort and jump and do all this crazy stuff. And you got some dude who's just there with like a Kevlar vest on and a cowboy hat, trying not to get impaled, trying to yeah. protect you know his ability to have future generations of cowboys, if you will. It's not an easy thing. I just worry about the mental health of these people that are doing it. Like why? I mean, it's awesome. It's so fun. I'm sure it's fun to watch, but like, why is the person who's doing it doing it? I mean, why do people uh, jump out of planes, man? Because it's awesome. I guess that's true. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, you know, Mm. know, I I was was like the guys that do the, they wear the suit, you know, and they like fly through the air with their arms out and stuff. I forget what that's that's called. Like the human flying squirrel thing. No, 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 no. Mm. The human flying squirrel thing. That's super dangerous. But people definitely die doing that. And they're always like, oh, well. It's very dangerous. People anyway, die jumping out of planes. PBR is awesome for a bunch of reasons. One is it's everyone's there just to have a good time, and there's no there's no like one team hating the other team thing. There's no like oh well we can't we can't be friends because you're a Islanders fan, for example, and I'm a a Maple Leafs. Are they still a team? They are. There we They're go. One of the I'm a Maple teams. Leafs fan. Eh? How many of the original six hockey teams can you name? The original six hockey National teams? Hockey League teams. Yeah. The Maple Leafs. Yeah, that. Well, I just gave you one. The Kings. No, yeah. L.A. did not get hockey till the seventies. The New York Rangers. Yes, that is one of them. The Red Wings. Wow. Yeah. You know why I know this, by the way? Why? Because I used you to read play Nintendo hockey game back in like the uh, late eighties when there were like only a few teams. I'm that trying makes to remember. Sense. I'm trying to remember the teams. Yeah, but that was right after expansion. Yeah, but I'm but I'm just saying like yes. it was you know so I just remember some of those teams. Uh, the Oilers. No, no, no. that's. Wait, no, what am I trying to think of? Not the Oilers. There's a team that's... Is, are they, were they a hockey I mean, the team? Oilers are a hockey yeah, team, they but Oilers. they're not an original not a, Oh, okay. I was... The Oilers You're now. missing the uh, Montreal Canadiens. That's a team? Yes. Oh, okay. The Boston Bruins. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the Bruins. I, I should have gotten the Bruins. Okay. And the Chicago Blackhawks. That's the last one. I never... I didn't even know that was... I'd never even heard of that. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was like a AAA baseball team. Oh, boy. Anyway, learning, learning new things as we go. I'm just telling you all, PBR... Is really fun. I had a great time. Family was there. You get to see the the bulls, and you know, you also you kind of like if you want to get up and go get a drink. It's one of these things too, where like you're not missing that much because like there'll be another bull ride in a minute. You know, so it's not like you've missed the big touchdown or something. How long does that take? Like, how long is a whole event? Uh, it's like a it's like a two hour deal, really? okay. hour forty five. Mm. It's not in the long. It's not long. It's not like a football game when you arrive for the tailgate and you're there all day. Sure, you know it's like it's like an hour and forty five, whatever. It's, it's like pretty, a quick entertainment I, kind I, of deal. Uh, a question for you though. This is yeah. one that I, I talk to my family members about. Um, how much would I have to pay you without any training? But you you got it, and you got to get on the bull, and you have to try. 
your very best to stay on for eight seconds. To that's you need to be on for eight seconds to score. How long would I? How much would I have to pay you? To get you to get on that bull. Did you ask your family about me specifically? No, in I asked okay. them about themselves. I was curious. Each, I wanted their individual price point for this. Uh, it had. It would have to be in the six figures. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, because you're risking correct terrible injury. Exactly. That's so what I'm not <laughs> to pay my medical bills plus some. That's what I was saying. I was yeah. like, I was like, yeah. I mean, you think you do it for like you know a couple thousand bucks or something? But you're like, except if I separated my shoulder and had like yeah. a lifelong injury from it. So have you ever done one at a bar? Like, the oh yeah, one? there's one in Dallas. There's a place in Dallas uh, on uh, McKinney Street where I am legendary for both my buck hunter skills as well as being able to ride the mechanical bull like a superstar. Is this before or after alcohol? Only after. Okay. I'm great at both, <laughs> only after. All right, Shifty Shift is coming back. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. But that's not what the American people want. It's not what the founders contemplated. Uh, and if you ask even a majority of Republicans around the country, they want the evidence to come out. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, withholding the articles is thus far flushed out where Mitch McConnell is coming from. It's required senators to go on record. Uh, and it's my hope that that pressure will result in a real trial fair to the American people. That's right. You've got Adam Schiff here telling you that uh, everyone wants the evidence to come out. Which is such a dishonest way of framing the issue because, yeah, of course, of course, everyone wants the evidence to come out, but they don't want Democrats. If they were asked this question in a way that was more honest, the situation, no, they, they don't want a situation where Democrats get to determine what evidence is presented, what evidence is suppressed, what witnesses get called, what witnesses don't. We've already gone through this. Democrats got to do exactly what they wanted, exactly the way they wanted to do in the House. And now in the Senate, They're doing everything that they can to try and game this process, too, even though they don't have the votes. They are not in charge, but they think they can still act like they are in charge. Uh, These people are a a disgrace. Um, I still think that Nancy Pelosi is going to transmit the articles of impeachment. But now I'm thinking that and this might be a way that. We'll have to see how the judges would rule on this in, in my little my little wager here with our friend Jesse Kelly. Uh, they may add something. So they may kind of hold it and then add to it and then transmit it, which is a middle way path between transmitting it as is or just not transmitting the articles of impeachment at all. Um, and this is also you have more evidence of this by them claiming that there's more evidence. Play a 16 here. Here's more shifty shift. But we ought to also start out by having the documents come out, and the documents that have been coming out lately are increasingly incriminating of the president. You can see why they want to cover those up. Those documents ought to be provided as well. Just just fantasy land stuff. Just make up whatever you have to make up now to try to increase the political pressure, to try to create a change in perception that's advantageous to Democrats. That's what is that's what's underway here. That's what they are trying to do. And I've got to tell you, folks, uh, if we start napping on this one, there's nothing these Democrats are. There's nothing that is too shameful for them to do if it's going to hurt Trump in this election year. I mean, they are completely insane with their hatred of this president and his supporters. And they really do. I, I think that a lot of them have convinced themselves. I never know who is being cynical as a Democrat and who is a true believer. I think there are enough true believers who really think that the country is at stake here. 
unless they cheat to win. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are raging bushfires all over Australia right now. It has been getting a lot of international attention. And this is a, a moment, a moment in time when I think we could all try to learn a few things about what is useful conversation in a situation like this and what is just more uh, virtue signaling by leftists. There's certainly no shortage of that going on these days. Here's the, the latest update. I mean, you've got the death toll from Australia's bushfires at 25. The Prime Minister of Australia has said that there will be an additional $1.4 billion in recovery efforts. And so you have these there were horrible fires all across Australia. Keep in mind, the landmass of Australia is absolutely enormous. But the destruction, I think, is already double in terms of uh, acres burned. It's double what you had in the worst fire season in recent years in California. So these, these are really out of control uh, bushfires, and it's clearly a major problem. And it, and it is terrible what's going on because the wildlife can't escape this stuff. Now, there is an environmental, major environmental factor here. You have a particularly dry season, not a lot of rain, and it's hot, very hot, very dry. And so, yes, you are having a number of fires. And this even came up in the Golden Globes when you had Russell Crowe got an award in absentia and... Uh, I was going to say Rachel from Friends. Jennifer Aniston, also known as Rachel from Friends, which is no longer on Netflix, by the way, which is a bummer. Uh, she stood up and she took, you know, read a statement from him about how he's defending his family, which, of course, respect and appreciate that in Australia, making sure they're safe during the bushfire, what the bushfire is going. And but that we need to take dramatic action, of course, to come back. Here we go. Climate change. Once again, it's, it's climate change. You have. uh Green Peace, I'm trying to find this uh, this statement they put out. Um, you know, here we go. The fires are still burning. This is Greenpeace Australia. And they'll be burning for months to come. That's why I outlined this is an initial investment of $2 billion. The more is needed, uh, more is needed, and if the cost is higher, they'll be provided. I'm sorry, that's Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Greenpeace responded to that saying... Every single cent of that money should be contributed by the coal, gas and oil companies whose carbon pollution has caused the climate crisis that has created these extreme fire conditions right across the country. Slugging everyday taxpayers with the bill for this just adds insult to injury. These big polluters have become rich by trashing our climate, and it's time they start coughing up for the repair bill. Now, I want to get into this because uh, this is now part of the uh, global collectivist and socialist uh, surge that we are seeing. You have all these different people that want there to be massive transfers of wealth determined by um, massive transfers of wealth determined by these environmentalist bodies, by government agencies and bureaucracies. Uh, and, and the consequences of this, of course, will be. Severe, but I want to point something else out because you have to really, you have to really look to find this. Because right now you might say to yourself, "Hold on a second, Buck." I mean, if we're really, and look, I saw, and I'll be honest with you, there are a few things. I was actually just talking to a friend about this over the weekend. There are a few things that get me uh, choked up as quickly as any anything that's bad that's happening to an animal, particularly a cute animal, like not you know snakes. I can't get that you know emotional about, but 
anything involving dogs, I completely lose it. Uh, and koalas. I'm also quite fond of bears. So anything, anything with those, you know, furry animals that are our, our mammalian cousins, including marsupials, which are very uh, widespread across Australia, as we know. Um, any mammalian cousins out there, and bad things are happening to them. That makes me that makes me very very sad. Um, that said. What's causing all of this? Because if we want, if we're upset about it, we want to stop it, shouldn't we understand what the... And this is the same thing, same conversation we've had recently about California. We're just seeing this now in the context of Australia. Now, Australia is like 8,000 miles away from California. It's a long... I think that's about right, maybe 7,500, something like that. Uh, but it's a long, long flight. I haven't made the flight, but I know it's a very long flight. But we're having the mirror image discussion on Australia of what we've already had in California. Oh, by the way, crazy California laws. We will have to get to that soon. Um, but here you have a situation where you could say, hold on, we're hearing about climate change all the time. We have these environmentalist groups. All they do is think about this issue and related issues, right? This is, this is right in their wheelhouse. So they must know what's going on here, right? They, they must be in the know about this circumstance, this situation, um, and be honest with the public because if they're going to try to help us prevent this from continuing on as is, we have to know what the real cause is, right? We can't be placed in a circumstance where we are trying to stop something by doing a thing that isn't related to the cause of the thing we're trying to stop. It's a very complicated way of saying don't waste your time, waste your effort. Um, but here's what I was able to find from poking around a little bit. Of the most recent studies, there are over 50,000 bushfires in Australia every year. The Australia National Center for Research in Bush Fire and Arson. I, I want to repeat that for you. Australia has a thing, you probably haven't heard of this before, called the National Center for Re Research in Bush Fire and Arson. Arson, the intentional creation of, or the in, in intentional lighting of fires, uh, a crime. Why would those two things be related? Well, because when you look at the numbers, you look at what's really going on in Australia and has been going on for years, here's what you find out. At least, according to the Institute in Australia, all they do is look at this issue. At least 13% or 100%, meaning at least we know for, a, for sure because of prosecutions and because of the, you know, the evidence, that 13% of the 50,000 plus fires in Australia every year. Remember, Australia is a, a, a continent. It's huge. So this would be like 50,000 fires in the entirety of the continental United States, right? Roughly speaking. Same. So it's not, we think of it as a country, but it's a huge survey. You can actually fit really all of, I saw a map showing this over the weekend. You can fit effectively all of Western Europe, the landmass of it in Australia. Pretty close. Not including Russia, obviously, um, which is not really Western Europe. That's another conversation for another time. 13% of these fires are definitely, 37% are suspicious, which means probably started by human beings, right? Why would a fire be suspicious? Well, you'd have to have some reason for suspicion. If you have reason for suspicion, there's evidence that it wasn't just, you know, a lightning strike or something along those lines. And that means that you add those two things together, and you have half, 
about half of the bushfires in Australia every year are deliberately set by human beings. So, by the way, you might be saying, well, hold on a second, Buck. That's That's got to be. What about people who, you know, they are camping and they have a campfire and an ember goes, you know, I mean, that, that must happen all the time. Oh, yeah, no, that does happen all the time. And you do have a very dangerous environment where you have you know a lot of dry tinder. You've got a tremendous amount of heat, not a lot of moisture because there hasn't been a lot of rain. So that happens. But guess what? All of those cases for everybody who leaves a campfire burning or who burns some brush or who does something that are not intentionally setting a fire, that's not even included in the 50% figure, according to the Australian National Center for Research in bushfire and arson. So, and, and they, they don't even know, by the way. I mean, they, they can't even, you, you got to assume. I mean, I think it's just fair to say that if, 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 if roughly half of the bushfires are either certainly or most likely intentionally set in Australia, which is what this, this is, by the way, this is from, I had to dig deep in the BBC. I mean, this is like, it's out there if you want to find this information. It's not being reported on very much. That's why you come here, because I actually look for stuff. I'm like, this just seems weird. That many fires, huh? They're just popping up all of a sudden? So you cut the number in half right away based on people not setting fires. Now we get into discussion of why would people set fire? What, what? Let's, we'll get to that maybe in a moment. Um, but then you add to it accidental, not arson, accidental fires. A safe estimate. They don't even know what the estimate will be. But a safe estimate is going to be, that's got to be half of the remaining, right? Half of the half that's left. So I feel like I'm back in grammar school doing fractions here. But that would mean that Based on my my back of the envelope, I'm just, you know, but back of the envelope calculation of the using the very real number of about 50 percent are intense. People are setting fires in Australia on purpose. That is what this research body that all they do is look at this issue. That's what they're telling you. When you add on to that accidental fires, you're looking at roughly, let's say, 75 percent of all these fires are man caused in one way or another. Meaning human beings are responsible for just like setting these fires because they either meant to or accidentally messed up. Have you seen that reported anywhere? No. You know why? Because they would so much rather show you. Look, I saw the video of the koala that was like singed and it like I like choked up. It's horrible and I feel terrible about it. But they show you the the koala that has gotten badly burned. They show you people giving water to, I mean, there's video of this all over the place on the internet, show, show people giving little bottles of water to a kangaroo that's, you know, parched and has been burned from the flames and trying to escape them. They'll show you this stuff. And then they'll immediately turn around and say, it's because of climate change. And if you don't see that, you're a bad person and you don't care about the burning koalas and kangaroos. It's emotional blackmail. It's proper. It, it, this is propaganda. It's very effective Techniques of propaganda being deployed by libs on all of this stuff. This is what they are doing. This is the way they approach all of this. And I would just say to you, um, you've got to. This is why it's so important to have alternative sources of information. Do your own, do your own uh, thinking about this. Come to places like this where I do. I mean, it's just me, producer Mark. I mean, we're just doing our own thing in here, doing our own research, pulling our own information, and presenting it to you, so that you can be informed in a way that. 
you won't be if you rely on and certainly the Golden Globes, which is really just a, a, a like a you know special society of self-indulgent idiots. Um, and you won't be if you rely on the mainstream media either, because they think, remember, the, the baseline assumption that they're operating from is that climate change is going to destroy the world. And so how they respond, their feeling on this is that anything that they have to do then in order to stop climate change, including lying to you about the reality of the uh, bushfires, I want to say brush fires, bushfires in Australia is entirely is moral. The lie becomes moral. The propaganda becomes self-justifying. I mean, isn't that stunning? I mean, sit here and just you actually look at this. It's this terrifying thing. The country's in flames. People are dying. Animals are being some species, they say, in Australia are being wiped out. Uh, this is all very sad. And then you have to get to, OK, well, what's really causing this? And the answer is human beings setting fires. That's what's really causing the setting fires in, in a in a, a situation where the weather is conducive to particularly conducive. It is dry and hot there right now, unseasonably dry and hot. It is, not, it is not because, you know, you aren't riding a tricycle to work every day. That's not what's causing the bushfires in Australia. People need to understand this. OK, the stupid libs at the Golden Globes don't want to wrestle with the facts here, but trying, you know, giving gaseous speech, uh, speeches about trying to stop CO2 gas from getting into the atmosphere is helping nobody. And then you have on top of this. The socialist agenda of these different environmentalist groups that really want major corporations to fund them and then they'll leave them alone. It's, a, it's like a protection racket they're running. You know, ExxonMobil, you got to fund our, our wacko environmentalist green energy, you know, advocacy group or else we're going to tell everybody how terrible you are. But if you fund us, you know, we'll probably leave you alone a little bit. Nice capitalism you got there. Be ashamed if something happened to it. This is what these green Groups are doing all over the world, not just here. They're doing it in Australia, any any developed country, any place where there's like the fatted cow of capitalism to be slaughtered. These green groups find a way to pretend that the answer is to turn it into hamburgers, right? Ruin what has been working so well for us has made us all so much more prosperous and comfortable and live longer and all these other things. Um, this is the truth of, of the situation in Australia now. It's just stunning. And then, and then I just, just briefly, I mean, I don't know. I think you'd have to be a, a psychologist to understand this. Or, I mean, I, I'm not even, also a lot of psychologists, I see them on TV. I'm like, well, that guy didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. So really, yeah, not, not particularly impressive a lot of the time with the diagnoses of different psychoses and such. But here's what I would say. There are, remember the uh, scene in Batman Begins? where Michael Caine, who's got that really, like, you know, Cockney accent, like, no one actually talks like that, but except for Michael Caine and the movie, talks like this. Excuse me. Excuse me, governor. You know, the whole thing. Um, he's like, you know, when I was, I was in the Imperial Service in Burma, and there was, a, there was this bloke who was running a rebel group who had a ruby the size of a tangerine. Some people just want to see the world burn. That's pretty much it, folks. Some people see an opportunity to destroy. And for very deep-seated reasons, they seize upon it. And for some individuals, that is through fire. This is why there are people who are arsonists. They like that momentary sense or that continuing sense of, of power they get 
from being the originator, from being the cause of tremendous destruction. There is uh, perhaps a hole in their soul. I, I can't begin to understand why anybody would do this, especially given the danger it puts fellow human beings in the destruction of property and, and the animals that will all be burned, are being burned as a result of this. Um, but there are some very bad people out there, and there are people who have uh, various kinds of, uh, of, of, of sickness of soul. I'm not sure we should call it even mental illness, just a sickness of soul. And that's the only explanation I can come up with for why anybody would set a fire like this, especially under these conditions and circumstances. It's so obviously dangerous. But that's what's really happening here. For all the, all the stuff about how we have to combat climate change, which now I, I no longer can take the intelligence of any person seriously who really thinks that combating climate change is something we have to do. I just, I just don't think it's possible to be, I don't think it's possible to have good judgment. You may, you may be uh, someone who has ability in other areas. You do not have good judgment if you believe that combating climate change is something we all have to do. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Now, we, we have really, we have great support, but we have tremendous uh, views, and much of it, so much of it is dishonest on the other side, but we're plowing through it. And I really do believe we have God on our side. I believe that. I believe that. You know, first of all, I love that just because when Trump says that we have God on our side, you know that it drives liberals completely insane, which is an exciting thing for me. So let's begin there. That, that's great. I mean, it, it triggers the libs for Trump to say, we have God on our side. And I'm not going to pretend that Trump is, it would be absurd. It would be, it would be r ridiculous to pretend that Trump's life pre-president was the Christian ideal. But none of us are the Christian ideal. It's also true. I am not the Christian ideal. I doubt any of you listening would claim to be. And increasingly, when I see the opposition to us, I have to say, Trump maybe meant it a bit as a jab, but I think he also meant it because it's true. I do think that if God is picking sides in this election, he's hoping to keep America great. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to send it on Facebook or we can go into the email inbox, which is teambuck at iheartmedia.com. Um, that is how we get this party rolling. I want to do a little double roll call today. Um, and uh, by the way, you will be able to see me, at least unless there's a cancellation or a change, which there always can be in TV world. But I'm supposed to be on outnumbered on Fox News tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern for the full hour with uh, the four ladies. I don't know who the four ladies are of Fox News who will be on the couch and have me as their as their uh, esteemed guest or hopefully esteemed, but definitely their guest. Um, but that will be tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern. So there we have it um, now. Just like to, and I appreciate also whenever you get a chance, uh, you can check out. We put a, I uh, did a hit on Howard Kurtz's show on Sunday on Media Buzz, and we'll put that up on the website, bucksexon.com, and also 
on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Okay. Sorry, I've got, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to get through, a lot of stuff to say and see and do, and there we go. Um, we have, wait, where did the, where did it go? We have the inbox with the team. Oh, there we go, the team buck inbox. I was trying to find it. Here we go. We have um, somebody who just calls himself Nebraska. Nebraska, okay. Buck, big fan here. Quick question. Why do you refer to Cocaine Mitch? I'm sorry. <laughs> that just happened. Why do you refer to Mitch McConnell as Cocaine Mitch? I can't stop scratching my head. Please, I need to know my scalp is getting a rash. Um, okay, so this is this is because of a fellow name. And I know I call him, I, I just, it's such a fun nickname, but it's a guy named uh, Don Blankenship who ran these series of ads, uh, and, and he's just trying to, I guess he's trying to primary Mitch McConnell. And he, he, he referred to the, Mitch McConnell's wife has some ownership interest or, you know, owns a, a piece of a shipping company, I believe is the backstory here. She's, she's Chinese or her family. She is of Chinese background. And uh, there was some somebody on the ship was arrested for like on one of these ships for this global shipping company was arrested for cocaine, I think, or something. Anyway, Don Blankenship came up with this thing that Mitch McConnell is like part of this international cocaine distribution conspiracy. And he ran some ad on it and referred to him as cocaine Mitch. And in this campaign ad, which producer Mark, we should find this, the original the original Blankenship. Not for now. Well, maybe later this week. It's kind of a little fun. I like to, I like to give the team something to look forward to. You know what I mean? But uh, we will, yeah, we will do a um, a uh, update on on all things uh, cocaine, Mitch, for for your listening enjoyment. But that's where it comes from. Don Blankenship referred to him as cocaine, Mitch, and it's a nickname that kind of stuck. And I heard from somebody who was very close to Mitch McConnell that he actually thinks the nickname is pretty funny. So because if there's anybody who's involved in like the international. Uh, international cocaine distribution. Mitch McConnell would be very, very, very low on that list. Um, but that's why. So totally legitimate question, and uh, it's from Don Blankenship running ads against Mitch McConnell where he called him Cocaine Mitch. Zach, who is OSS. Buck, you're the best. Well, Zach, I think you're the best. No surprise, your analysis on current events around Iraq, Iran, and Suleimani uh, has been spot on. I think you should bring Joe Kent on your show to discuss further. He's a retired Green Beret chief warrant officer out of uh, out of fifth group with extensive experience in the Iraqi Shia. He's also a gold star husband. He lost his wife, Shannon, in Syria last year. He brings a very sober and realistic perspective to the situation. He's done some quick hits on Fox. I think your show will be a better format, Shields High. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for the suggestion. I'm not familiar with uh, with Joe Kent. But we will uh, take a look, and we'd love to have him on the show to talk about this, uh, given the background that you've presented that he has. So uh, and, uh, anytime you guys have somebody that you particularly think would be good for this format, we are going to start doing more long-form interviews in the future, and we're going to put them up on podcasts, but also we're going to have a YouTube going. And so we're, we're getting all these things moving. Um, I've been telling many of you, for, you know, it, it always happens. It just takes me time because it's, it's just – a team of, of two in here in the hut right now. And it is not easy to get all these things. And you know, I got a book I got to write. I got a YouTube channel. I got a lot of things I got to do all the time. So um, I did tell you, though, for example, we would start getting the podcast of the show out earlier. And now we do. Now it's out every day by 3 Eastern. So those of you who want can listen much earlier. Um, 
which has been a plan of mine all along. Uh, so yeah, um, I would, but you can always send along any any guest suggestion that you have. We are happy to have you uh, present that to us here. So just send it. Present it to us by sending it to us. Present it to us. You don't have to give it to us on like a, you know, silver platter or anything like that. Just send us the thing. Lowell. Um, Lowell, the email is taking way too long to load. I don't really know why. There we go. Buck, I know people always ask for recommendations of books or movies. I have one. The TV series Merlin is a British fantasy adventure drama television program, BBC drama series between 2008 and 2012. I'm assuming it aired then, not takes place then. Uh, I like it because it has basic humor, swordplay, and magic. Plus, it is clean and the whole family can watch. This program helps when you want to turn the brain off for a while. Well, Lowell, thank you for that. Um, That's certainly uh, sounds pretty cool. I, I like all that you know, medieval magic, sword, Dungeons and Dragons stuff usually is a genre. Not The Witcher, which is the worst thing ever, but I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Some of you like it and you get mad at me. Fine. You're allowed to like it. You're allowed to, look, team, I love all of you. You're allowed to be wrong sometimes. You can be wrong about The Witcher. That's cool. Um, Marina writes, uh, I trust you and producer Mark had a lovely holiday season and you had a fun birthday celebration. Well, Marina, I was a little sick, but Thank you, nonetheless. I've been watching some of the comments the Democratic Party, presidential hopefuls, and ridiculous celebrities have made regarding Trump's decision to take out Soleimani with that drone strike, and I couldn't help but recall Hillary Clinton's glib comments and giggles about the death of Muammar Gaddafi. We came, we saw, he died. That's the thing about lying. It's very hard to keep track of what you said previously. Love, life, and freedom to you both in 2020. Marina of the esteemed group of patriots known as OSS, the original Saturday squad. People that have been with me now, gosh, it's going on going on eight years. Um, Marina, yeah, I mean, they, they have a different, this is one of the main things that we have to call out and talk about here on the show is that Democrats have different standards of what's acceptable for Democrats versus what is acceptable for uh, Republicans. That's true. All the time. I mean, a variety of contexts is true all the time, really. Um, they do not have a universal standard because if there was a universal standard, they could be held to account. They do not want to be held to account. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do. Pursue power, get away with things. Double standards are fun. Being a hypocrite's fun. You get away with a lot. Uh, and it's certainly true about Hillary and the, the intervention in Libya and what was the point and what were we doing there and where was the congressional blah, blah, blah. blah. No, none of that matters. Uh, it's all about how Democrats absolutely want power. Uh, Guile writes, hey, Buck, if Sean Parnell is listening, good luck on your run for office. Buck, you asked Sean about the best flavor of ice cream. You know what I found out, producer Mark, to just have a little diversion here from this for one second? You know, my parents told me, and like they kind of had to tell me this solemnly because I was over there, obviously, for the holidays, hanging out with them. No, like, you know what, Buck? We like strawberry ice cream. I, I don't know, man. I was. I, I mean, thought, teach their own. I, I just. I thought everybody understood that strawberry ice cream is the worst. But my own family, there are strawberry. Ice All cre- of them. There are strawberry. No, my parents. Okay. No, my siblings understand. My parents are strawberry ice cream eaters, though. I don't just not say. like a strawberry. I mean, my dad sorb- respects, and so does my mom. A good pistachio, like sure. they they know the real ice cream flavors too. Yeah. But they'll eat strawberry ice cream, and I just I think at never. some point. It's actually my wife's favorite. Like, there's a, a very famous ice cream place we go to where, where we live. Give it a she shot. She likes What's pistachio. It What's it called? Marvell. 
Oh. Marvel Ice Cream in Long Beach, New York. Not a play on Carvel. No, no, like, no. It's just it's called Marvel. It's like Carvel with an M. Oh. And it's nice. much better. What is the best flavor of ice cream there? I like chocolate, but my wife goes pistachio. I see. I think pistachio is just like it's a special thing. I get very excited about it. But anyway, um, you asked Sean about the best flavor of ice cream. Thank God he did not say strawberry. I added that in. His cookies and cream is almost a perfect answer. I have a local Dairy Queen trained to add bacon to the blizzards. What? All I have to do is say, will you guile that for me? And they blend in bacon bits. I do prefer it with caramel chunks, but it works with anything. I'm serious. If you try it, you won't be disappointed. Also, you got two more dedicated listeners already for you this year. Shields high, Guile. Well, Guile, thank you. Guile gave me a birthday present and a Christmas present by bringing more people into Team Buck. I don't know about the rest of you. I haven't, I haven't gotten, you know, a notification in a day or two about it. It makes me sad. Uh, would you? Add, what do you think about bacon ice cream? I would try it. I'm not much of a sweet and savory guy together. I have had chocolate-covered bacon. That is delicious. There is a bacon bar in Midtown Manhattan. In Midtown Manhattan. That's a thing. Oh, yes. I haven't been to it yet, but I really want to go. I really want to go, too. I'm actually <sighs> going to have to go check that out. I literally just started a diet today, too, so we really shouldn't be talking about this stuff. Yeah, I got I to gotta get healthy, too, man. I'm, I got December was a bad month for me, uh, <sighs> eating-wise. Yeah. From the honeymoon on, it just... I just don't understand up. why they can't figure out a way to make brie a health food. Like like cheese, my weaknesses are cheese and chocolate. Cheese isn't that bad for you. There's protein. Yeah. It's a little fatty. But calorically, it's, you know. Sure. You eat like a wedge of, you eat a wedge of any cheese and you've pretty much done your damage for the whole well, meal. Well, you do it in moderation. Yeah, that's what they yeah. tell me about everything. So you've talked, if you talk to people who want to be healthy, they'll say you can eat anything, just eat it in moderation. Yeah. Like, where's the fun just of that? Just go on the keto diet. I want to stuff my face. Yeah, I love, we, we got uh, Jesse Kelly is a keto diet expert. You ever see his Twitter account with that? I have, yes. It's amazing. Uh, all right. It's funny. We actually, somebody just wrote this in. I did not pick this out. Headline, cheese. Don't worry, Buck. You aren't the only one with a cheese problem. And they sent me huge cheese platter photos. You see, this, this is amazing. It's a real thing. I did see that one, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So, perfect timing on that one. All right, now we got uh, for roll call, Robert, who writes in, Dear Buck, on your show Thursday after New Year's, you said you were not feeling well. To help prevent the colds and flu of winter, I take two natural remedies which I can recommend. The first is echinacea which is an over-the-counter remedy that helps strengthen the immune system. I take it if I start to feel run down. Its value was confirmed when I was speaking with Congressman Andy Harris, a practicing anesthesiologist, who said it's the first thing he takes when he starts feeling bad. The second item of value for specifically helping to prevent influenza is an elderberry and black currant preparation. The product which I buy is Immune Take Care by New Chapter, a very reputable nutraceutical company. About 10 years ago, I had the flu, began recovering, and then had a relapse. Elderberry was recommended, and I took the product, and the next day had no flu symptoms. While I am no longer employed, I do take it when I'm out among people and had not had the flu since that episode. Keep talking, Robert. Well, Robert, thank you. I have, I've certainly heard a lot about echinacea over the years. I have never heard of uh, taking elderberry and black currant though i've heard of elderberry i don't know what it does but i've definitely heard the term did you see by the way do you look when you're in cvs or something over the weekend the oscillococcinum the what oscillococcinum again that sounds like something i'm telling you it's a, i'm telling you it's a thing Os, I'm, I'm looking it up right <laughs> uh, yeah here it's uh, uh, type it o s c i l l o c o c c i n u m 
What does this do for me? What it does is, you know, it protects your oscillococcinum. What do you mean? I, <laughs> I just... It's, it's, no. it's, it's, a, it's a important immune component. Sure. That has, you know, you gotta... It's, I'm telling you, it's a product. They sell it all the time. Homeopathic remedy. I've never... never I think we need this behind us. Okay, fair enough. Fine. I'm just conversation. I'm just trying to tell you, man. It's an important... You gotta have enough oscillococcinum in your immune system or else bad things happen. You're getting good at saying um, that. Yeah, I'm, well, it's, it's a long word. It's, and the yeah. fact that I could actually read it. Producer, producer Nick, I mean, he's got kids. He knows all the, the cold remedies out there that you've got. I'm sure he could send us some of his homeopathic best, which would probably sure. involve chicken soup. Chicken that's soup is that, Jewish that, staple. Yeah. Well, no, it's the, the matzo ball is the real thing. Oh, yeah, but you, your mother makes Producer Nick takes elderberry. We you got know, producer right. Nick, he takes elderberry. So he it's just, a real thing. Yeah. By the way, I keep saying it's two. I mean, we've got producer Nick, too, but he's, he's not in he the studio with this. So, yeah, yeah, he doesn't have a microphone. But there's actually three of us that are always on this, uh, on this little express train to insanity here. All right. Anyway, enough about that. Andrew, enough about... I'm not even going to say it again. Homeopathic flu, flu medicine. Oscillococcinum. There you go. Did I say it right? You did. Wow. Well done. Andrew writes, Buck, okay, before we start, I am pre-OG Team Buck going back to 2013. Uh-oh. So he's, he's making me, he knows that I love him now. He knows he's like family now. He knows my OG, my OSS. These people have been with me forever. He says, before we start, I'm pre-OG. Okay, your review of The Witcher on Netflix was harsh. It is expected of someone who is unfamiliar with the source material, so I don't blame you. Anyway, The Witcher on Netflix is absolutely amazing when you came from the gamer or book reader's perspective. Without going too deep, Eastern European folklore is a very strange thing compared to what we think of with monsters and magic fantasy. But when you are familiar with what The Witcher is, the show is so great. Andrew, your bro from Indiana. P.S. If you get to a point in your life where there is time for video games, play Witcher 3 on PlayStation 4. Um, okay. I mean, Andrew, because I, I have not, I have no knowledge of this video game, I, I can't say that, well, you're wrong. I just, I, I think that you have to, when you present a show on Netflix, it has to be a good product for what it is. It can't just be a good product for some very small subset of the population that is familiar. But, I don't know. I guess they make some things for the fans out there. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I, I hate when I say that because I never lie to you, but it's a phrase that people use. I watched Doom, uh, I forget what it was, like the, the new Doom movie, which was so bad, but like so brainless that it was kind of okay to watch. It's like a bad ripoff of the movie Aliens, but you know, Doom was a video game. It was is like they open a, it's like futuristic, but they open a portal to hell. And it's a first person shooter. I think it was one of the original. Reminds me of Wolfenstein, another. Did you ever play Wolfenstein? That was great. That was a fun game. You just ran around shooting Nazis. It was pre-Inglorious Bastards, which I feel like kind of just stole the basic idea from Wolfenstein was the name of the video game. Um, okay, we ran into some interesting stuff today on the show. Tomorrow's show is going to be amazing. If you can, tune in at 12 p.m. Eastern or tape it with your DVR. I guess you don't tape then, you, you record. Record with your DVR. Outnumber tomorrow. Till then, shields high.